Glad you're here this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to that text in John chapter 3. And I want to welcome those of you here at North Indy and also our brothers and sisters at Castleton. Glad to know that together we're going to walk through a great passage of Scripture today and ask the Lord to use the number of weeks that we're going to be looking at what it means to come to Jesus as a way to do some things in all of our congregations, both at North Indy and at Castleton and also at Fishers, each in unique ways. Over the last few months, I've had two conversations that are connected to what I'm talking about this morning and what we're going to be talking about really for the next six weeks. Ironically, both conversations happened in a car. They were similar, and yet there were aspects of them that were unique. One happened in a Uber, and another happened in a courtesy vehicle connected to a dealership here in town. First, the Uber car. So I was in Baltimore, Maryland, needed to get a ride from Baltimore to Washington, D.C., hailed an Uber. The driver picked me up. We're making our way there through traffic in the D.C. area, so we had a lot of time together in the car. And on this driver's rearview mirror was a series of beads, and I thought those beads were rosary beads. And so as we're traveling around talking about various things related to Baltimore and D.C. and everything else, I, I asked our driver if she was Catholic. She then told me, no, she wasn't Catholic, that she was a Muslim. And I didn't know, sorry for my ignorance, that Muslims also have prayer beads, that the bead was for the name of Allah. And so this, to recite the names of Allah on a daily or every other day basis was a part of her experience. And so we began to talk about the difference between Islam and Christianity. Candidly, she knew more about my Bible than I knew about her Koran. She began to explain to me all of the reasons why Islam was superior to Christianity. Now, she was driving, so I had to be gentle and careful, but she was blunt, she was bold, and she was confident. And as I listened to her, I could feel this tension inside of me starting to rise because there was this single nagging question, and it was this. How do I turn this conversation and share the gospel with this woman in a way that doesn't offend her? I only have a little window. How do I move this conversation along in a way that gets me to the gospel, but at the same time doesn't create an offense? And as I wrestled with that question, sitting in that Uber car, it struck me that while I was concerned about offending her, she was not concerned about offending me. And I found myself stuck between this tension between compassion and conviction. I wanted to share more, and eventually I did, but there was this struggle that I had to be able to work through, this barrier, if you will, this dynamic between my compassion for her, my love for the gospel, and this tension that I felt about how do I do this in a way that's right. The second ride was in a courtesy vehicle from a dealership here in town, and the other person was uh, riding along with us. There were two of us in the vehicle. After this person dropped off, well, was dropped off, the driver said, now where do you need to go? And I said, I need to go to College Park Church on 96th in town. He said, oh, I know where that is. And so we started driving. He said, do you work there? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, what's your role? That's usually my lead-in. 
What's your role? And then the conversation changes from that point on. I know what's going to happen. I said, well, I'm actually the teaching pastor at this church. He said, oh, okay. And that was just kind of a, there's no, no forward movement there at all. And I asked him then in the awkward silence, what do you do for a living? So we talked a little bit about that. And then he told me that he and his wife attended a particular church in town, which that did not give me any confidence that he was a true follower of Jesus. I knew a little bit about this church and where they stood with the gospel. And as we're coming about two miles away from the church, I know the church is getting closer and closer and closer. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how can I turn this conversation toward the gospel? I don't know this man very well. We've already started a little bit, but what do I say next? How do I make this turn? And we're getting closer and closer to the church. The pressure's getting stronger and stronger inside of me. And then the church was inside. I thought it's too late, which it was. We pulled in the parking a lot. I said goodbye, closed the door, walked in the church, and felt guilty all day. Because I felt like I failed. How do I make this turn? How do I move from this person that I want to talk about the beauty of the gospel, but to do so in a way that isn't offensive? Now, my guess is that I am not alone in this tension between compassion and conviction. When it comes to talking about the gospel, I am sure that for those of you that are followers of Jesus, you have faced this issue Many, many times. It may be that you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, but even you can understand the nature of the tension. After all, if you're not a follower of Jesus, my guess is you don't want somebody recklessly talking with you about some of the most important questions in life. Maybe you've been at a mall or downtown where someone assaulted you with their beliefs and it just didn't fit the relationship. Well, what we're going to do over the next seven weeks is try and dial in to that central issue of how do we share the gospel with compassion and conviction. The aim of the series is to look at the various ways in which Jesus engaged different kinds of people and how he called them to faith and belief. What were the ways that Jesus balanced compassion and conviction. So over the next seven weeks, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to see a religious seeker, that's today, a man in a tree, a woman with a past, the rich and famous, adoring crowds, popular and proud, and a thief on the cross. So we're going to walk through each of those particular people coming from various walks of life, and we're going to see the way in which Jesus spoke to these individuals or these groups of people in a very unique way. We're going to see the unique particular people that Jesus encounters. We're going to see the barriers that each of them had, and we're going to see how Jesus dealt with them. So as we walk through these next number of weeks, I want you to see sort of that, that framework or that lens. Who are the people? What are the barriers? And how did Jesus speak to them with compassion and conviction? Now, part of the reason that we're positioning this particular series in the middle of the summer is because this is the time of year when your neighbors are actually outside. This is the time of year when you have all sorts of activities that create opportunities that are unique from the rest of the calendar year. And we want you to be able to seize on those opportunities to look for open doors, to be able to talk about the beauty of the gospel. So what we want to do during this series is try and help you learn something and then help you do something. And here's some of the ways that we're going to serve you in that regard. First, we have a new um, sermon study guide put out by our small group team, a discussion guide. Love to have you pick this up. Some great discussion questions if your small group is meeting. You could use this for a Bible study or perhaps for your own um, family devotions. 
Each campus has their own individual steps in terms that they're trying to take at Castleton. What you need to do is use this summer to be able to build relationships with people in your neighborhood because on September the 10th, you'll be moving into your new facility and you don't want the first time you invite somebody to be the first time you also meet them. So you can do that, but it's even better to be able to build a relationship with them or you also have a pitch-in that's happening on June 25th, which would be a great way to invite them and build a bridge. Here at North Indy, what we're focusing on is the word neighboring. And the idea is this, is we want you to take what we're hearing over the next number of weeks and apply this to the neighborhood relationships that you have. We're going to have a variety of resources that are available to you. They will be posted at the local outreach wall. So as you leave this morning, I want you to go out and see some of the resources that are available to you there, some of the countless, uh, countless ways that you can engage as a neighbor in your community, in your neighborhood, or with people who are near you and around you. And then I want you to save the date for Friday, February, or February, July 28th, which is the evening that we're going to have a celebration here, a bridge building event for you to be able to invite your neighbors. We're calling it Summerfest, an opportunity for you just to get your neighbors on site in a fun, enjoyable environment to build relationships. We want you to use this to, to build a bridge of grace that can eventually bear the weight of truth. I want you thinking this summer about how do I pray, Lord, open a door, open my mouth, and Lord, would you open their heart. And then, when the opportunity comes for you to talk about the gospel and you feel the tension related to compassion and conviction, I want you to think about this series. And hopefully we'll be able to help you understand some things about how to work through that tension that we all face. Now, This morning what we're going to do is to look at the man Nicodemus and how Jesus interacted with him. In the flow of John's gospel, it's interesting that the first person that John identifies who hears the gospel, the first person that Jesus attempts to evangelize, is this religious seeker. He is, according to the text in verse 1, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You need to know that this placement of Nicodemus in the narrative is intentional. Jesus' encounter with him will become foundational for the rest of John's gospel. And what's more, this chapter, chapter 3, contains some of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, particularly John 3.16. So understanding what's happening in John chapter 3 is incredibly important. But what you need to know is John chapter 3 is sort of the setup after Jesus says something, or rather John says something really important in verses 23 and 25 of chapter 2. Look at it. It says this. Now when he was in Jerusalem... At the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So that comes just before the story of Nicodemus. Why? Because what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to use the story of Nicodemus to illustrate what's going on in the heart of mankind, 
John then uses that encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus in order to demonstrate what is happening inside the heart of every human being. So, John wants us to see what Jesus sees when he looks at mankind. So you need to know that this story is not just about Nicodemus. It's about what's in every person. So what do we learn about Nicodemus? First, we learn that he is a Pharisee. He is a ruler of the Jews. Now, this particular cultural categorization immediately sets Nicodemus apart from the rest of society. He was a part of the educated, elite, and ruling class. Nicodemus would have been one of 70 men who were part of the Sanhedrin, the religious and political power center in Jerusalem. So Nicodemus would have been highly educated. He would have come from the right family. He would have been well-known by the people. He would have been familiar with the political landscape in Jerusalem. He would have known how to be able to navigate it. And more than anything else, Nicodemus would have been revered and he would have been trusted. You could think of him like a Supreme Court justice. Even if you don't agree with their view of the law, they're still going to have a high degree of credibility. Or a business leader. For instance, if it said, at night, Warren Buffett went to meet with Jesus. Or Chief Justice John Roberts. Or Tom Hanks had a conversation with Jesus. The point is, is that the person, their name, their reputation, sort of makes you sit up and say, oh, this will be interesting. He's an esteemed man, and that's the point. Secondly, we learn that he comes by night. It says, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, some commentators make very little of him coming by night, like it's merely an anecdotal comment, but I think there's more to it than that. It appears that Nicodemus wants to ask Jesus a question, but he wants to do it privately. He doesn't want to go public. Perhaps, perhaps Nicodemus knew the ramifications of asking a question of Jesus out in the open. Or maybe he just simply wanted a private audience with Jesus. The point simply is that Nicodemus is searching. Third, if you look at the entire Gospel of John, Nicodemus only appears in two other places. He appears in John chapter 7, where in the midst of some discussion about Jesus' teaching, Nicodemus asks a procedural question about whether or not they should first hear what Jesus has to say. And then the, the rulers jump on Nicodemus. Well, are you from Galilee as well? And then in John 19, that's the other place that he appears, where he is assisting Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of Jesus when he brings 75 pounds of spices. If you were here on Good Friday, I talked about this and the fact that 75 pounds of spices would indicate that someone was viewed as a king. So I think that what happened by the end of John's gospel is that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus. But what we do know is that it didn't happen in John chapter 3. The point of this text is not to highlight the conversion of Nicodemus, nor is it necessarily to give you a strategy about how you reach upper-class, highly educated religious people. No, what John is doing is he's using Nicodemus in order to show us something, show us what's in heart, inside the heart of every man, every woman, every person. 
And what I hope that you realize as we walk through these number of weeks is that every single person in our culture, regardless of where they fall in the social status or economic status or what their story has been, everyone is searching for really good answers to really big and nagging questions. Questions that will not go away. Even when people classify themselves as religious or as spiritual, they're still trying to answer questions about life, about death, about sin, about forgiveness, about identity, about their future. Everyone is seeking. Sometimes that, that a crisis happens in a person's life and it surfaces these questions, like these questions that were there all along, suddenly because of the death or of a job loss or an illness, suddenly now these questions can't be pushed down anymore. But realize those questions are there, meaning every person you encounter this summer, every person you always encounter has fundamental deep questions. The questions are not if they're there, the question is what have they done with those questions? So he's a religious seeker. Now the main thing that I want you to see in this text are the barriers. Because with every person that you're going to look at this summer, every person we're going to study, there are particular barriers that are standing in the way between them and hearing and receiving the gospel. And those are the barriers that create the kind of tension that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Tension regarding compassion and conviction. So what, what are Nicodemus's barriers? And these barriers are common, but they're especially common for people like Nicodemus, even within our own culture. Here's the first barrier. It's the barrier of knowledge. Look what Nicodemus does in verse 2. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. That's the word that you need to know. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now there's so much happening in this verse. Nicodemus sees the signs that Jesus is doing, And he knows that those signs must indicate that something special is going on with Jesus. But what's interesting, before he even gets into that, he calls Jesus rabbi. It's a title of respect. Jesus was not part of the educated class. And yet Nicodemus, I think, in a flattering sort of way, calls Jesus a teacher From God, he acknowledges that God must be with him in order to do the signs that he does. He says, we know that you're a teacher. Here is an educated man who knew what he he saw, and he knew what it meant. At least he thought he knew what it meant. But look what Jesus does. Jesus, in verse 3, tells Nicodemus that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's taking what Nicodemus has just said, We know that you've come from God because we can see the signs that you're doing. And Jesus says, unless one is born of God, he doesn't see the kingdom. What's he doing? He's attacking Nicodemus' belief that he knows what he sees. He told him that there was something beyond his knowledge. And what Jesus is doing here is drawing Nicodemus out by making a statement that is surely going to generate more questions, but more importantly, 
He's, he's trying to help Nicodemus see that he doesn't know what he thinks he knows, that his knowledge is a real barrier. Listen, there are some people in your life, people in my life, who their level of knowledge is a barrier to us sharing the gospel. If you ran into, let's be honest, if you ran into an uneducated person, you would be more inclined to share the gospel than with an educated person. Why do you think it's so hard to plant churches on the East Coast and the West Coast? Why is it, particularly the, 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 the Ivy League schools and, and the upper intelligentsia, why are they harder to reach? Because there's a knowledge that serves as a barrier to the gospel. And Jesus is talking to one of the most knowledgeable people in the entire culture, and I want you to notice what he does. He identifies that he doesn't know what he thinks he knows. There's some of you who are completely intimidated by people who have higher education that you'd never think of sharing the gospel with them when the fact of the matter is they're just as lost as an uneducated person. In fact, in some respects, the barriers for them coming to faith are higher. Jesus helps him to see that what he knows is not what he thinks he knows. Second barrier, self-sufficiency. In verse four, Nicodemus immediately responds with a question about what it means to be born again. Nicodemus is gonna figure this out. He then says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, think of that question. It's a ridiculous question. Nicodemus is in effect saying, what you're talking about is impossible. How, how could anyone, how could, I, how could I do that? That's the nature of the question. And that's entirely Jesus' point. Without being born again, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. Before, he couldn't see the kingdom now he cannot enter the kingdom. So what is Jesus doing? He's attempting to dismantle Nicodemus's trust in himself. You see, Nicodemus's religious training, his education, his knowledge, his self-trust, these are the barriers that are standing in the way to him trusting in Jesus. He is showing Nicodemus his personal insufficiency. So question for you. Is self-sufficiency a barrier in the city of Indianapolis? Is self, let me make it more pointed. Is self-sufficiency a barrier in the suburbs of northern Indianapolis? Oh, friends, it absolutely is. I remember the first time I visited here almost nine years ago. Now I'm, I'm rather used to it. It doesn't even seem that odd to me anymore. I remember seeing developments with mansions in them. I remember driving around and I was struck by the number of foreign and high-end cars. And where my church was, it was a Ford pickup. And you were lucky to kind of not have um, a tarp over parts of your roof and things of that sort. Conversations at restaurants loaded with a vocabulary that was really, really unusual to me. So I... I don't think, I hope I don't need to convince you that, that knowledge and self-sufficiency are part of the cultural air that we breathe, especially in northern Indianapolis. But don't make the mistake of thinking that because self-sufficiency or the sense of achievement is present, 
that there isn't an enormous amount of spiritual need. After all, why is there an opioid crisis in the northern suburbs? Behind all the education, behind the spirituality, behind the material success, listen, are lonely, hurting, and lost people. Maybe that describes you. Maybe you're here today and nobody would know that inside you're dying. Somewhere in your heart you know your life isn't working. It's not going to last. And when you look at John chapter 3, my hope is that you'll see not only Nicodemus, but you'll see you. You need to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, in order to share the gospel effectively, you have to start by realizing what your target is. Your target is not just to share the gospel. Listen, your target is to figure out what is this person trusting in? In fact, I want to suggest to you that the art of neighboring means you move from what is their name to what are they interested in to what are they trusting in. And I want to challenge you to see if you can move some conversations along in that perspective. You won't really know what someone trusts in if you don't know what they're interested in, and you won't know what they're interested in if you don't know their name. So for some of you, you need to start with what's their name, and then where is the level of interest? What are the things that are interesting and you have common denominator with them, and then you want to be able to get somehow to what are they trusting in? The fact of the matter is that Figuring out what people trust in requires us to think carefully and strategically, to try and point people away from their knowledge and away from their self-sufficiency. You ought to be the, the kind of person that perhaps when the, when the bottom drops off on someone's, or do, bottom drops out on someone's life, that you're the first person that they call because you've built a relationship, and that's when you can see easily what they're trusting in, but live your life and have conversations with folks such that you think through this trust lens. What are they trusting in? What are they hoping in? What Jesus is doing here with this highly educated religious man who seems to have it all together is Jesus is going after the fact that Nicodemus trusts in himself. He thinks he knows what he knows because he sees what he sees. So part of the art of neighboring, part of the strategy of sharing the gospel with conviction and compassion is figuring out how to get to that level in people's lives. One person who does this better than anyone I know who helps to sort of disassemble what people are trusting in is Tim Keller. So if you want to know how to do this disassembling of what people are trusting in, I recommend any number of his books. In particular, if you wanted to read one this summer, I would commend to you the book Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. In that book, he quotes C.S. Lewis. Here's what Lewis says. Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones 
There was something that we have grasped at and in that first moment of longing which just fades in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. Hotels and scenery may have been excellent. Chemistry may have been a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. Every human being is running from that reality. I don't care what your education is, what your background is, the people you work with, they may seem to have it all, but if their hearts, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Knowledge and self-sufficiency are common human barriers. So what's their name? What are their interests? What are they trusting in? Here's the final barrier for Nicodemus which is unbelief. After identifying the first two barriers, we now come to the third issue here, where Nicodemus, in a rather exasperated tone, says, how can these things be? This is a good example that Jesus has begun to disassemble what Nicodemus is trusting in. Notice, notice that there's tension here. Some of you assume that if a, success, if a gospel presentation is successful, there will never be any tension. That was part of the mistake of me thinking in the back of that Uber ride that if there's tension, that somehow something is wrong. Well, maybe the tension is a good thing. Because after all, think of the moments in your life when categories began to fall down and assumptions you made of life began to be proven that they were not true and you began to rethink things that you had believed before. Was not that a very uncomfortable process? And so why do we expect an unconverted person, a person who's not a follower of Jesus, to be comfortable as they're considering the most uncomfortable claim in all of the world, namely that God is holy, they're not, and that Jesus could save them from themselves? Jesus is blowing Nicodemus' mind. Categories are falling all around him. But notice what happens. This is very instructive. Jesus doesn't bail him out. He lets it happen in verse 11. Jesus identifies that Nicodemus does not receive his testimony. After saying these things, how can these things be? Jesus even says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you did not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is not letting him off the hook. It's making it worse. Nicodemus is frustrated. He's, he's, how can these things be? Jesus doesn't rescue him. He doesn't save him from his intellectual collapse. He just simply lets it go. In fact, in some respects, Jesus accelerates it. Why? Because Jesus knows that Nicodemus' greatest problem is Nicodemus and his thinking. Jesus is taking the things that Nicodemus trusts in and he's turning them on their head. He's skillfully and lovingly helping Nicodemus to see the false foundation of his entire life. And so before he ever gets to the good news, he's helping Nicodemus to be able to see his need. But in order to do that, Jesus had to talk to Nicodemus, not only with compassion, but also with conviction. 
So what I want you to see here is that there is a very important strategy in sharing the gospel that involves not only sharing the good news, but also helping people realize that their lives are being built on the wrong foundation. To be able to help individuals realize the, the desperate reality of their need. And to, that, that to, to short circuit that process, now to do it wisely, to do it graciously, to do it lovingly, to short circuit that process doesn't help serve gospel purposes. You know, it's a little bit like parenting. In order for children to understand where they need to go, they have to understand where they've gone wrong. And so, if you're a parent and you've got children, let's say, under the age of five, your number one task is to help your children realize that they're sinners. Because it's crazy. Children do not believe they're sinners. They believe they're righteous. My wife teaches kindergarten Sunday school, and her entire focus in the kindergarten class, because of our scope and sequence, is to convince kindergartners they're sinners. And you would be surprised how challenging that is. She's telling me a story that she asked some children to raise their hands, and how many of you are sinners? And everyone in the class raised their hand except one kid. I mean, can you imagine the pressure? Everyone in the class raised their hand. He's like, no, I'm not a sinner. And one of his friends said, you're a sinner, raise your hand. Come on, like calling him out in front of everybody, right? And, and, and part of the, 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 the role of raising children is to help them understand who they really are. But do you know that problem doesn't go away when you turn 13 or when you turn 30 or when you turn 60? The the challenge is, is that in order for us to understand the beauty of the gospel, we have to first understand the desperate reality of our need. So I just want to encourage you that when you share the gospel, and if somebody just simply understands a little bit further about what their need is, but they've not actually crossed the line and become a follower of Jesus, you've made good progress. That them receiving Christ is the end goal, but they have to come to a point where they realize sort of the the dissection of their own soul and come to realize what they're really trusting in. And friends, that is hard and long-term work. In fact, We move now, finally what Jesus does is he shares with Nicodemus what is the hope of the gospel. And what's remarkable here in verses 13 through 16 is that he identifies himself as the son of man in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who's descended from heaven, the son of man. He then in verse 14 connects himself, the son of man, to something that, that Nicodemus would have known, the story of Moses and the serpent. Notice he makes this connection. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Notice the shift. Before it was Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And now here's the flip where Jesus says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here is the unique way in which Jesus presents the gospel. On the one hand, it's absolutely incredibly exclusive. You don't see, you don't understand. On the other side, it's wide open arms. Whoever believes can come. And that's the story of the gospel. It is this. Whoever believes can come unless you trust in yourself. Whoever believes in Jesus can come to him unless you're going to simply stay and trust in what you see and what you think you believe. And then in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gives Nicodemus the bigger picture story that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting 
or eternal life. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Stunning and sweeping statements that we're inviting Nicodemus to believe. But the question is, did Nicodemus believe? The passage ends without a clear decision on Nicodemus' part. So don't, don't miss this. Jesus shared the gospel. The Son of God shared the gospel with compassion and conviction, but it didn't necessarily result in an immediate response. Listen, that should really encourage you. We are called to share the gospel with compassion and conviction, but we are called to leave the results to God. You are not being asked to convert people. We're only asked to be witnesses. But in order to be an effective witness, we have to know who this person is. What's his name? He's a religious leader. What does that mean? Understand his story. What are his interests? What are the things that that are a part of his thinking? And then finally, and this is where it really matters, what is he trusting in? This is the art of gospel neighboring, to be able to connect, to love, and to build into people's lives so that we will have the opportunity to share the gospel with conviction and with compassion. So here's your assignment. I want you to begin to pray that God would give you an opportunity this summer to move the needle along in a conversation with someone, and when the tension comes where you feel the tension that I described in those first two cab rides, that you're able to feel that tension and see that tension and to be able to move beyond that tension knowing that this could be the fourth of six conversations that this person's going to have in order for them to come to faith in Christ. For you to be able to build relationships with people such that they such that you know what they're really trusting in so that you can help them understand that this is not going to last. To remind the successful executive, you know life's not all about work. And if they say, I know, well at least you just reminded them of what they already knew. To be able to realize that you could be the person that when life falls apart, that you're the person that gets the phone call to try and, and help put their life back together. Or to be the kind of person who's able to point people away from themselves and towards a relationship with Christ. And if the conversations don't go all that well, if you feel the tension inside of you because you're trying to figure out what the next step is, or even if you walk away feeling a little bit disappointed, here's here's the calling. Keep inviting people to come to Jesus with both compassion and conviction because you never know when the Spirit of God's gonna move because that which is born of the Spirit is born of the Spirit. And we get to be engaged in the beautiful work of inviting people to come to Jesus. Father, would you help us to be the kind of people who see the beauty of the gospel in our lives 
and who want to be able to share that with people around us. Thank you for the example of of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, and we ask for your grace to be upon us as we have opportunity to engage people in conversations this week. Would you give us boldness? Would you give us the ability to see beyond just the things that are right in front of us? Lord, help us to not fear, but instead to speak, speak the glorious truths that have so changed our lives. Lord, we love you. You know our weakness. You know our fear. You know our tension. And thank you that even when we don't do as well as what we ought to, Lord, that you can, by your spirit, bring about new life. So we trust you, we rest in you, and we ask for you to send us out on mission today. We pray this in Jesus' name.